Hello and welcome. The following message is from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. In preparing for this message, I noticed how important names are in the book of Ruth. Uh, And I actually did some research elsewhere, and I noticed that some really familiar characters in films and literature have a, a double meaning. Their name has a double meaning. Like, this is all over J.K. Rowling's Harry Potter books, for example. Like, the main vol- the main villain, his name's Voldemort, his name literally means the, the flight of death, which, if you're familiar with the story, actually is quite relevant. There's a professor uh, named Lupin, who turns out to be a werewolf. And again, that's right there in his name. Draco Malfoy is a character in the Harry Potter books, and his name, Draco Malfoy, literally translates to a dragon of bad faith. And again, if you know, that's actually a really good name for that character, given what we know of him. In the Star Wars universe, there's Darth Vader. And Darth Vader is apparently Dutch for Dark Father. Like it was there all along. Who knew? All, all this time, it was right there in his name. In the Disney universe, there's this is all over the movies, and it's like there's Cruella Deville, Devil, right? There's in, in Beauty and the Beast, there's Belle, whose name literally means beauty, and we could go on and on and on, but we see that when we give a character a name, that says something about who they are. It says something about their their character and their identity, and most of us didn't choose our own names. But what if we did? Now, don't answer that, but what name would you give yourself? Like, if you were to choose a name today in light of what it's like to be you, if you were to choose a name in light of the things that you've done, or if you were to choose your name in light of the things that have been done to you, what would your name be? You know, I can think of a woman who was abused as a child, And throughout her life, she's learned to expect things to go bad. She lets people walk all over her, and and her name would be victim. And I can think of a young lady who, uh, growing up, her older brother was constantly praised by mom and dad because he was athletic. He was great in school. It's like he could do no wrong, and her name is invisible. I know of an older woman who struggles with anxiety, She's super gifted, you know, super gifted. And, and her anxiety keeps her on the sidelines of life, keeps her uninvolved and unengaged and really doubting herself. And I think the name she gives herself is unworthy. I know of a number of Christian leaders battling depression and constantly doubting themselves. Their name is Imposter. Imposter. Uh, And I can think of a a Christian husband, actually, more than one Christian husband who struggles with sexual temptation. Uh, His wife doesn't know about it. He just accepts that this is the way it is. And he's named himself. No big deal. No big deal. I even know of a woman whose husband uh, left her a long time ago, left her on her own to raise the kids, find a job, raise the kids on her own, and... Her name she's given herself is unwanted. Well, for the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about the suffering of Naomi's family. 
And after that, all that Naomi has been through, she names herself bitter. She names herself bitter. Well, we're officially in the season of Lent now. Yeah, this, this Sunday is the first uh, Sunday in Lent. It's a season of self-denial that takes us all the way to Easter. Lent isn't fun. Lent isn't a season of, of celebration and, and lightness. But Lent can be a time when God meets us in a powerful way and, and helps us to become more like Jesus. And, and, and our hope is that as we study Ruth and as we look at the example of the ways that Ruth and Naomi suffer, and how they trusted God and waited for a redeemer. If, if we can learn from their example and, 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 and in our, the same way, look for our redeemer. Then maybe God will be glorified in our Lent. And maybe our faith will be strengthened. And that's why we're studying Ruth. Now, we, we probably aren't going to suffer in our lives the way that Naomi did. But it seems to me all of us if not most of us, are going to suffer. And you may be going through suffering right now. You might be struggling right now. And when you do, you're going to be tempted to reinterpret your whole life and all of your reality through the lens of your suffering. And I want, to, I want you to know, it's going to feel true. And, and that reinterpretation, it's going to feel accurate and truthful and real. But I want you to know, it's not. I want to say off the top, it's not. In fact, doing this, reinterpreting all of life through the lens of your suffering won't help. And Naomi is going to show us that today. So let's let Naomi teach us some lessons in suffering. And what I want to do is begin by just noticing three things that happen in this morning's passage, okay? We just want to notice three things that happen in the passage. First thing I want to observe is that suffering can divide a community. Okay, let's observe from what happens in Naomi's story. Let's observe that her suffering divides a community. Okay, verse 19, the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? So just to understand, Naomi and Ruth, now they're back in the land that Naomi left with the people that Naomi left behind. And years ago, when she left this place, she had a husband, she had two sons, and she left in order to escape famine in hope that in Moab, things would turn better. And now that she's back, the town, it's, the, the version says that it's stirred. The people are stirred. Other uh, versions use the, the word uh, excited. Um, I think the, the message translation does a really good job. Eugene Peterson says that the town was buzzing at Naomi's return. The idea is that this is home. These are the people that Naomi has grown up with. They haven't seen her a really long time. And they're all stunned and stirred and excited about the fact that she's back. And what is this about? What's going on here? And so some of the women, verse 19, are, are, are asking the question, can this be Naomi? Like, could this really be her? Could this person in front of us, could this be the same person who left us those years ago? It seems to me, her own, it's interesting, her own people may not recognize her. Or maybe they do recognize her and they just don't know what to do with her. But they're divided. And some people are talking to Naomi and some people are talking about her. And this is a community that's divided because of the suffering. They're not ready for a Naomi. They're not ready for a version of the Naomi that they knew who now is suffering. 
And that's because suffering can divide a community. Another observation I want to make is that suffering can distort your faith. Suffering can divide a community and it can also distort your faith. Now, let's look at, let's look at Naomi's words and see who does she actually think is responsible. Well, she thinks it's God. She says, God has made my life very bitter. Right? Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. Verse 21, I went away full. God brought me back empty. God has afflicted me. He did this. God has brought misfortune upon me. Except, you know, it seems, it's interesting. It seems like it's not a complaint. You might hear the way that Naomi talks here and you might assume that she's complaining. Like, can you guys believe this? God has afflicted me. God has brought misfortune on me. Like, how could he do this to me? But you know, you, you got to understand, Naomi wouldn't dare complain to these women. If she were complaining to these women, they would come back and they would say, hey, wait a minute, Naomi. We remember that famine too, okay? We lost husbands too, Naomi. We lost sons too, except we didn't leave. We didn't bail when things got hard. We stayed. And so Naomi wouldn't dream of complaining to these women because they've suffered in some, many of the same ways that she has. It's, in fact, what this sounds to me, it sounds more like acceptance. She accepts that her suffering is God's judgment. And so it's not, can you believe what God has done to me? It sounds to me more like God has brought affliction and misfortune on me because that's what God does to the guilty. My family sinned against him. We're, we're the bad guys. We got what we deserve. And we should ask, when we hear Naomi talk like that, we should ask, is she right? Is God judging her? Is he punishing her for what's happened? Is, is this God's judgment? And my answer is, well, yes, but no. Yes, but no. And let me tell you what I mean. Because on the one hand, this is a community that believes that misfortune and affliction, that those two things are signs of guilt of sin. Like that's what Job understood. Okay, in, in chapter 31, the book of Job, he's responding to what's going on in his life. He says, doesn't disaster come to the unjust and misfortune to the evildoers? Job 31 verse 3. Job understands that misfortune comes to evildoers. And later in the book, Job has a friend named Elihu who speaks kind of prophetically over the life of Job and says, Job, be careful that you don't turn to iniquity or sin because that's why you have been, been that is why you have been tested by affliction. So Elihu believes, just like most people in that culture, affliction comes as a result of when people turn to iniquity or sin. That's Job 36, 21. And you now you and I know, we, we have heard Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin, the wages of sin is death. It's death. And now I don't want to be unkind. I don't want to pile on to Naomi's suffering here, but let's be honest. There is a lot of sin and selfishness in the house of Elimelech. Okay? As, as the husband and the father and the head of the family the decision to sell the property and to leave Bethlehem, that's on Elimelech. That was his decision. He made that decision freely. And then when Malon and Killian, when they were grown men, they made the decision to marry Moabite women. That was their decision. And it was the, you know, the equivalent of a rejection of the God of Israel. That was their decision. That's, that's on them. And so in a way, yes, 
justice has been done now that the guilty are punished, now that Elimelech's line has ended, and now that there's no chance that his sin is going to spread to the rest of Judah. So yes, in a way, it looks like Naomi's suffering is God's judgment. On the other hand, just to, I want to be really clear here, I want to be really slow about pointing fingers at anybody, especially Naomi, and saying that it's judgment, okay? I'm not going to say that Naomi is sinless here, but just to be clear, like, I mean, if we're honest, if this is a typical ancient Israelite family, it's not like Naomi got a vote in what the family did, okay? Like in Ruth 1.1, it says that, that um, Elimelech set out for, my, for Moab. It's him who set out for, for Moab and the rest of the, of the family came with him. Okay, there's no consultation. There's no, hey, Naomi, I'm hearing good things about Moab. Hey, property values are good. Why don't, what do you think about selling? No, there's no consultation. Elimelech makes up his mind. She and the boys go along because that's what you do. And when the, when the sons had made up their minds about marrying Moabite women, uh, they're, they're grown men. They don't need mom's permission. What's she going to do? Is she, gonna, is she really going to sit them down and say, boys, I forbid this? Of course not. What's going on here, it turns out, is Naomi is one of countless millions, maybe billions of women across the world, across history, who suffer in a disproportionate way because of the sins of men. Think about it. Whenever there's a war, when there's a famine, when there's violence, okay, when there's plague and persecution, when the men are gone... Right? And the men are starting over. Who's left picking up the pieces? Who's left caring for the family? Who's left fixing the house? It's the women. It's the women. Who stays behind to, to heal the community? It's the women. And that's where we find Naomi at the end of chapter 1. She has suffered, not, necess- not so much because she was personally responsible, but because she was numbered with those who were. And her suffering has distorted her faith now to such a degree that she's become certain that God has turned against her. Her suffering has distorted her faith. And so we've seen her suffering has divided the community. It can distort your faith. And suffering, thirdly, can destroy your identity. This is the third observation. Suffering can destroy your identity. You know, this would be a good place to pause and just observe that the names in the story of Ruth are are pretty interesting here. And, and, and pretty significant, actually. You almost wonder if some license has been taken by the author after the fact. Sort of like, uh, you know, this story is based on or inspired by true events kind of thing. Because the name Elimelech, the, the father, the head of Naomi's family, his name means my God is king. Which is kind of ironic, right? Considering the, the choices that Elimelech has made in the story. Their two sons, Malon and Killian, literally mean sickness and wasting or sickness and like consumption or sickness and like uh disaster it's not that's those are not those are not nice names but that's not ironic that's those names are actually pretty fitting given what we know happens to Malon and Killian in the story and the names of Naomi's daughters in law there's first there's Orpa and the name Orpah literally means back of the neck. And back of the neck. Why would anybody name their daughter back of the neck? Well, we don't know. Except we do know that that's, that's exactly what Naomi saw as Orpah left. As she turned around and went back to Moab. 
Naomi saw the back of Orpah's neck. And so that's the one daughter-in-law. The other daughter-in-law, though, of course, is Ruth. And Ruth, her name literally means friend or companion. And that's, that couldn't be more appropriate, right? The name friend or companion wouldn't, couldn't be more appropriate for somebody like Ruth. But Naomi's name means pleasant. Naomi means pleasant, except not anymore. She says, don't call me pleasant. Don't call me that. That doesn't, that doesn't apply anymore. That name, you know, like that name no longer has any meaning for me. Call me Mara. Call me bitter. Call me, that's, what, that's a better name for me. Call me bitter. I left here full. Now you can call me empty. I used to enjoy life. Now I'm afflicted. My life used to be blessed. Now it's just full of misfortune. And what's going on here is Naomi's suffering has become so intense, so serious, that not only has it changed her community, not only has it changed her view of God, but it has changed how she sees herself. And whether you, you know, in the midst of your suffering, whether you go as far as giving yourself a a new name, each of us is going to be tempted to redefine ourselves and our identity in light of our struggles. Okay, each of us, when we're going through hard times, we're going to be tempted to let those circumstances shape the way we see ourselves. You know, in in the wider culture, there's there's some debate over whether identity is something that is set or if it's something that we construct or we create for ourselves. And uh, late in 2021, Instagram the people at Instagram, they sort of waded into the debate and they introduced a new campaign that was targeted at young people and the campaign was called Yours to Create. And the pitch here, the idea behind this campaign was that um, Instagram is like a, a necessary tool that young people need in order to create their identity. And so in other words, what's going on here is Instagram has weighed into this debate over identity and says identity isn't something that's set. Identity is something that is yours to create. And what they said in their their campaign promo, they said, yours to make showcases how you can explore who you are with Instagram. So far, so good, right? But what they say next is really interesting. For young people, identity isn't defined. Let me say that again. For young people, identity isn't defined. It's something that's constantly explored. Instagram believes when we have a place to collectively explore who we can be, we can move ourselves, our communities, and even the world forward. It's yours to make. Now, when I read that, I was, I was quite, I found that very interesting. That's an interesting claim because that's a belief. Instagram has offered a belief and assumption and has has set it forward, like stated it as though it's a settled fact. What Instagram has done actually though is they've made, that that's actually a theological statement because the, the only one who can answer the question of identity is a creator and anyone that that creator has revealed their answer to. Okay, none of the 20 year olds working at Instagram are qualified to say whether or not human beings create their identity or if it is something that is discovered or or informed and given by God. And yet they've based this campaign, yours to create, they've based this on their assumption, based it on their belief. And that belief is going to drive millions of users 
to make conclusions about their identity and make conclusions about their self based on what they see and experience on Instagram. That is a great mistake. That's a great mistake. And in the same way where chapter one of the book of Ruth ends, Naomi is at this point where she sees her whole life and her whole world and her whole whole identity through the lens of her suffering. Don't call me pleasant. That's not who I am. My suffering is bitter. That name, pleasant, that doesn't apply to me anymore. Call me bitter. That's who I am. One Christian author who I think has been really helpful in the realm of identity formation is a Christian psychologist named David Paulison. And he says that your true identity is a gift of God, a surprising discovery, and then a committed choice. Your true identity is who God says you are. You will never discover who you are by looking inside yourself or listening to what others say. The Lord gets the first word because he made you. And he gets the daily word because you live before his face. And he gets the last word because he will judge. He will administer your final comprehensive life review. I think that's great news. I think that's great news that it's not up to us to create our identity, but just to discover the identity that God has given. What name have you given yourself? What what names have you called yourself in the midst of your suffering? And what if we let our creator have the last word? Well, let's take these observations we've made and let's translate these into some lessons about suffering that we can take with us into the rest of Lent. Okay, think of these as lessons in suffering well. The first lesson in suffering well is that we don't choose our neighbors, we choose how to treat our neighbors. All right? Let me say that again. We don't choose our neighbors, we choose how to treat our neighbors. You know, it's interesting that when Naomi and Ruth arrive in Bethlehem, the, the whole town, they have a decision uh, to make uh, about how they're going to treat this new neighbor. They're like, well, they, they had a decision, right? What, what are we going to do with this woman? Are we going to pile on and add to her shame or, or could we bless her? And it seems to me you and I face the same choice. Every one of our neighbors, everybody in our life has a story. They have names that they've given themselves and names that they've believed about themselves. Maybe we can't fix their suffering, but we can choose to treat them better than the name that they've given themselves. It seems to me that's the Bethlehem that Naomi needed. And, and we, can, we can be that for our neighbors. We didn't choose our neighbors, but we can choose to, to love the neighbors that God has chosen for us. That's what we can be for our neighbors. So that's the first lesson. We don't choose our neighbors. We choose how to treat our neighbors. Let's treat them a little better than their name. A second lesson we can learn about suffering is that our identity isn't ours to create. Okay? Identity isn't ours to create. I just think this is such a relief. You know, in a a, a Bible-informed, Jesus-centered worldview, identity isn't up for grabs. It's not ours to create. Let's remember, we are the clay and he's the potter. So nobody goes up to the lump of clay and asks that lump of clay what it is meant to be. If you want to know what that lump of clay is is, is meant for and, and destined for, you ask the potter. 
Nobody goes up to the painting and asks the painting what, do, what it means and, 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 and where it belongs and how it's best interpreted. No, the, you don't ask the painting, you ask the artist. And it seems to me in the same way, when Naomi names herself in the midst of her pain, of course, we can empathize. We understand why she did it. But it was a mistake. It was a mistake. And because we know that hard times are sure to come for all of us or most of us, let's decide now before the suffering happens, let's decide now to accept what God says about us so that we won't be so quick to accept what our suffering tells about us. Okay? Let's, let's decide now before the suffering arrives that we're going to believe the identity that God has given us, the identity that God has told us is ours, that good identity that God has given us so that we won't be so quick to accept and believe the lies that our suffering tells us. I just so appreciate this quote from Eugene Peterson. He said that my identity does not begin when I begin to understand myself. There is something previous to what I think about myself and it is what God thinks of me. Let me say that again. My identity does not begin when I begin to understand myself. There is something previous to what I think about myself, and it is what God thinks of me. A third lesson I, I hope it will take with us is that God alone knows his reasons. It seems to me when when you know when Naomi and the and Ruth and the women of Bethlehem are there standing at the gate. And, and they're listening to Naomi talk about herself and call herself bitter. seems they've got a, a couple of options there. On, on the one hand, they could respond and react and they could like, they could pounce on her and kind of correct her theology. Like, oh, no, 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 Naomi. Like, actually, Naomi, you're ignoring some really important passages of scripture. Let us show you how to interpret the Bible correctly, okay? You, you, there's some, some d- bits of doctrine and theology you really need to get right, and then you wouldn't say these things. Except the problem is, is, is that Naomi is not, not wrong, not exactly. Like, we can make the Bible say all sorts of things about judgment. We can make the Bible say the things that Naomi believed about herself if we want to. If we want to use the Bible that way, we certainly can make it say those things. Just so you know, those are the easiest sermons to preach. I've preached lots of those sermons in my time. It seems to me Naomi's problem isn't her, her doctrine so much as it's her application. Naomi has made some theological conclusions based on what she sees and based on what she feels. It's not so much doctrine, it's, it's application. It's, it's, it's an interpretation of her circumstances. Okay, So if the, the thing we feel needs to happen first when we hear Naomi is to correct her theology, I'm just gonna, what I'm going to ask you to do is just to hold off for a minute. Because I don't think that's what she needs most. On the other hand, I think some of us maybe have another reaction which isn't helpful, and, and, and it's maybe that we don't want to say anything at all. Maybe we don't feel qualified. Maybe we hope someone else will come along. And if, and if so, I would just say, yeah, actually, somebody did come along. It, you. Naomi's face-to-face with you, and you have now an opportunity to, to, to bless her and make her suffering easier or harder. And, and I just want you to know, I've been a pastor long enough to learn that um, 
neither response, neither the, you know, the doctrine first response, nor the silence response, neither of those actually is, is very helpful. Uh, you know, the, the, the place that we find Naomi in this passage, I really believe it's not a place that we can think or reason Naomi out of. What she needs isn't, isn't answers. You know, she needs a community. She needs a, a, like a faith family, a, a people who know her, with whom she is in thick community, where she feels safe and welcome to let her guard down and weep and belong and learn and heal and grow. And when the right time comes along, and you'll know it because she's asking questions, and you'll see that she's open and learning. When the time comes, we're going to have some really good news for Naomi. You know, we're going to be able to say, yo, Naomi, your suffering has meaning. It's not random. It has purpose. And I, I know it's hard to see. I know it's been hard to go through. But there are a thousand things that God might be doing here. And, and most of it we might, might not even understand on this side of the kingdom. He hasn't, he hasn't promised us that. God hasn't promised us that we'll know all the reasons for what happens. But one thing we do know is, is God is for you. God is not out to get you. God loves you. He sees you. He knows you. In God's eyes, you are not bitter. You are, you are pleasant. And we can leave the reasons for your suffering to him and stick with what we do know which is the love and the grace and mercy of God. A final fourth and final lesson is that God himself provides the redeemer. God himself is going to provide the redeemer for Naomi. Uh, I just think that's so important. I think it's an important way for us to end the story. You know, when I think about Naomi and what she's been through in her story so far, she reminds me of another tragic uh, female character in, in literature, the character of Fantine in, in Les Miserables by the author Victor Hugo. And I know some of you have, have read the story or you've seen the, uh, the, the musical. But uh, when we first meet Fantine in, in Les Miserables, she is this like sweet, innocent, beautiful young woman. She's got beautiful, long golden hair, the most incredible smile, snow, you know, white, snowy skin. And, um, and Fantine... This innocent, beautiful woman, she falls for a man named Felix. She falls in love with Felix and he seduces her. He gets her pregnant and he leaves her alone to raise their illegitimate child in this conservative, like religious uh, community. Okay. In this religious culture. And, and uh, in the musical, Fontaine sings about what's happened to her in this song called I Dreamed a Dream. And, and part of it goes like this. She, Fontaine sings, I dreamed a dream in time gone by when hope was high and life worth living. I dreamed that love would never die. I dreamed that God would be forgiving. Then I was young and unafraid and dreams were made and used and wasted. There was no ransom to be paid, no song unsung, no wine untasted. She goes on and sings, and still I dream he'll come to me, that we will live the years together. But there are dreams that cannot be, and there are storms we cannot weather. I had a dream my life would be, so different from this hell I'm living. So different now from what it seemed, now life has killed the dream I dreamed. You know, Fontaine has become like Naomi. 
Suffering has distorted her faith and it's destroyed her identity. And in fact, in the book, Les Miserables by Victor Hugo, when we first meet Fantine, he describes her as, quote, the essence of joy. He calls her gaiety tempered with dreaminess. He calls her sculptural and exquisite. And he sums it up. Victor Hugo calls Fantine joyfulness. That's what he says. He says Fantine was joyfulness. At the end of her story, Fantine is on the street where she is called other names. She's called Minx and Wretch and Whore and Hussy. And, and that's just by the chief of police. And eventually someone comes along who doesn't treat Fantine according to these names. Doesn't treat Fantine according to what's become of her. His name is Jean Valjean, if you're familiar with the story. Jean Valjean befriends her and he supports her and he he takes her in and he rescues her child. Jean Valjean can see through what has become of Fantine. You know, he recognizes the image of God in her and he treats her like that. In, in other words, Jean Valjean is Fantine's redeemer. And you know, when we meet Naomi at the end of chapter one, the men in her life have all failed her. They should have never taken her to Moab. They should have brought her back to Bethlehem. They should never have married these Moabite women. Now the men are dead. Now her husband is dead. Now, her, now life has killed the dream she dreamed. But along comes Ruth. Along comes this woman named Friend. And Ruth pledges herself to Naomi. And they walk together all the way to Bethlehem. And where we end chapter 1 in verse 22 is that Naomi returned from Moab accompanied by Ruth the Moabite. Her daughter-in-law arriving in Bethlehem just as the, har- the, the barley harvest was beginning. And it seems like there's a tiny little ray of hope. Like for the first time. There's hope now, thanks to Ruth. Ruth is turning things around. Ruth is the redeemer who came along and was there at a time when the men failed to be. Now, I don't know what names uh, we have learned to call ourselves by today. I, I don't know what you have called yourself. I don't know what names our family and our friends and our neighbors and our co-workers have learned to call themselves by, but I know that we do. I know that we all do. We will all call ourselves names and without someone to come along and treat us better than the name we've given ourselves, without someone to redeem our suffering, it is almost certainly going to divide the community and distort our faith and destroy our identity. And, and we should pray that God sends along uh, a Ruth. He might do that. He may send a Ruth into our suffering. He may send us to be Ruth for someone else who is suffering. But even if he does not, even if he doesn't, he has, he has sent someone greater than Ruth. Because there, there is a Redeemer who meets us in our Moab, and he walks with us all the way back to Bethlehem, and, and, and he knew what we had done, and he knew everything that has been done to us, and he took that identity on him, and it, and it killed him. He took that identity to the cross, and he died, and he was raised, and he's given all of us a new identity and a new name. And 
and, and, and that identity is, is totally different from the names that we call ourselves. He is, he is our good shepherd, and we're his sheep. We are the sons and daughters of God now. We are now friends of Christ. We are the body of Christ. We are a royal priesthood and a, a, a holy nation. Those are true of us. Those are our identity. And that's true today. Thank you, Lord, that those are true of you today. Thanks for listening to this message from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. Feel free to copy and share these resources, but please don't alter the content in any way. We invite you to visit us online again soon at www.benediction.church for more teaching and information about how you can join us in serving and praying that it would be in Hamilton as it is in heaven.